Good morning. I hope you've enjoyed our, our study on Providence, and it's been a blessing to me for sure. I hope it's been a blessing to you. Take your Bibles and turn to Genesis 50. Genesis 50, we'll get there in a little bit. Unfortunately, we need to end this series, and there's a whole lot we haven't considered. Uh, matter of fact, we have just barely scratched the surface of the providence of God. But um, today, we're going to look at God's providence over sin and sanctification. Uh, so far, we've seen that God's providence extends from the largest of galactic systems to the smallest molecule and cell in your body. Um, he governs the natural world, we've seen. Uh, he, has, he governs storms and earthquakes and volcanoes and animal and plant life down to the smallest detail. He governs uh, the movement of kings and nations, makes one rise, one fall, changes the boundaries of nations as he pleases. Last week we saw that he is sovereign over life and death. We, what, we, what we've seen is that he doesn't just wind everything up and then change his will to match what he knows will happen. God didn't look down through the corridors of time and say, oh, Mark Fisher's going to come to church today, so I'm going to make sure that I do X. That's not the way God works. Rather, in his governance, he moves, he acts, and he makes his will done. So it should come to, as no surprise that he also governs the sinful acts of men and women and moves believers along in their sanctification. That's abundantly clear um, implication before we even get into the scripture of everything that we've studied so far. I want to remind you of something as we get into this particular message. God is infinite. We all know that, right? We are finite. We know that too. We are, we are the creature. He is the creator. So it stands to reason then that God acts in ways that we do not understand. And in ways that seem to implicate him in evil and sin. And so as we get into this, I, I encourage you to take his word at face value and be willing to live with mystery. That's what we have to do because he's God. So let's just jump into the deep end of the pool with an illustration of God's providence over uh, sin from the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 50. And we're going to look at verse number 15. Joseph's father has died. His brothers obviously still feel guilt and also fear at the power they're younger brother possesses they sent him a message verse number 16 your father gave this command before he died say to joseph please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you now please forgive the transgression of the servants of god of the god of your father and joseph's response was that he wept now why, why, would they, why would they say that? Well, the, 
Joseph's story begins all the way back in Genesis 37. You remember that? He's the, he's the at that time, he was the youngest brother. Um, he had one younger brother eventually. But he was the favorite brother of his dad. That made him mad. He had a dream and told it to his brothers. They already hated him. And the Bible says that that, that caused them to hate him worse because of his dreams. Sometime later on, Jacob sent Joseph to go check on his brothers. They were tending sheep several days' journey away from where they were living. And when they saw Joseph, they conspired to kill him. Reuben intervened and had a plan um, to, to rescue him by convincing his brothers, let's just throw him in a pit, we'll kill him later. Reuben was going to rescue him and, and help him out. But while Reuben was gone... The brothers, motivated by greed, now is greed a sin? It is. Sold Joseph to a caravan going to Egypt. In the course of time, we know what happened to Joseph. Slave, prison, and then second most powerful man in the Egyptian empire. And there was a famine. His brothers came down to Egypt to buy grain. Joseph recognized them immediately. They did not recognize him uh, and if you read the story, it's a beautiful story. Eventually, he uh, revealed himself to them. And uh, before we pick back up in chapter 50, I'm going to look at chapter 45. Now, I have a question for you before we get to chapter 45. Was their selling Joseph into slavery sinful? They were motivated by greed. The answer is yes. Was their lying to their father and letting their father believe for all these years that Joseph was dead, was that a sin as well? The answer is yes. And so, um, that's, we all agree on that. But notice Genesis 45, 5, and notice how Joseph tells it. He tells a different story. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Why? Now, that word for in Hebrew that's a connecting word, a purpose. God sent me before you to preserve life. Now, this is through a sinful act. Verse number seven. And God sent me before you to preserve you a remnant on the earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. And then he summarizes. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. That's Joseph's summary. So is Joseph right or wrong? He's right. Their sinful act was God sending Joseph before to preserve life. Now let's go back to Genesis number uh, chapter 50 and let's see how Joseph responded to their entreaty in verse number 19. But Joseph uh, said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Now notice what he says. As for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, oftentimes when we read a text, we read a meaning into the text that's not there. So what did you just hear when you read that text? Did you hear you meant it for evil, but God used it for good? Because that's not what the text says. Meant is a, is a 
is a word that conveys purpose. Instead, they meant their sinful acts, and God meant their sinful acts. Those are words of purpose. Two purposes occurred simultaneously. They intended sinful acts by sinful designs, but their decisions were intended by God according to His saving design. That's a lot to chew on, isn't it? This is a biblical teaching that theologians call concurrence. Okay? And, And frankly, it's a mystery that we will not fully comprehend or even understand. I don't think there's anybody saying here right now saying, oh yeah, I got this. The mystery is that human sinful willing is not just used or managed by God after the fact, but rather the sinful act is meant or intended by God for, sin, for righteous purposes. That's a big difference from the way that we think about God. And add to that another mystery. Here's another mystery. God does all of this in such a way that he does not sin, and even further, he does good at every point. That's mind-blowing, isn't it? All of this happens, and this is important too, all of this happens according to the prior wisdom and counsel of his will, Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, I am God and there is no other. I am God and how many are like him? None. Declaring the end from the beginning. In other words, I've already declared what the end is going to be of everything, every day, and every moment. And from ancient times, things not done yet saying, And this is the important statement. My counsel shall stand. I will accomplish my purpose. And so God means sinful acts to accomplish His purpose. God doesn't use sinful acts to accomplish His purpose. Just use, I should say. Because He does. He means them. It's a word of intention. This is the mystery when we think about Joseph. We can throw in Pharaoh later on in Egypt, or the Babylonians in the exile of the Jewish people, or the officials who crucified Jesus. The mystery is, and here's the mystery, at at the very same time there are two wills acting, one human and sinful, and the other divine and righteous. And they work together to bring about sinful deeds whereby humans are guilty and God is sinless. Now, with all this as food for thought, I want to introduce a biblical concept that clearly goes against our Western sensibilities. God can see to it that sin happens 
without himself sinning or take away the responsibility of the sinner. The Bible teaches this clearly and repeatedly. Now, for us Westerners, a lot of times we say, well, my God wouldn't do that. Or we say, well, that's not fair. Or how can he be good? Or we're just robots if, if, if all this is done by God. And none of these things are true. Remember, God's infinite. We're not. We just have to accept what Scripture says. Turn with me to another passage of Scripture. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2. This is the account of Eli the priest. Now he had um, two wicked sons. You remember them? Hophni, Hophni and Phinehas, right? And um, they were, they were um, just very wicked. We'll pick it up in verse number 22 and not go through the whole story. Now Eli was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent, tent of meeting. Now that's, uh, that's adultery. That should be um, stoning, right? And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for them? Now, notice verse number 25. But they would not listen to the voice of the, their father because they had really hard hearts and God was taken by surprise. Is that what the verse says? They would not listen to the voice of their father for, here's that word of purpose again, it was the will of God to put them to death. They kept on sinning by the will of God in order for him to put them to death. Hard to wrap your mind around that, isn't it? So Eli called them to change, but they wouldn't listen because it was the will of God. Now, um, it was because God intended to put them to death. So these men were guilty of hardened, high-handed sin against God, but the author is clear to put the final defiance and disobedience in the hands of God. So here we have that concept. Sin occurs, God ordains it, meant it, He's good, but the humans are still held guilty. I have another question for you. Does God know what it would take? These, these boys didn't repent. Does God know what it would take for someone to repent? He does, doesn't he? He may or may not bring about what it takes. It was, it was the will of God to put them to death rather than lead them to repentance. Now why is that? Because they were really, really bad and most people are not really, really bad. Let's turn to the New Testament now. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 11. I'm trying, I'm, I'm doing this because I want you to see the mystery of Scripture and in reality, you need to be satisfied with the mystery and not try to explain it away. Matthew 11, 
there are some words of Jesus in Matthew 11 that we read right over, but we don't think about the implication of the words. I want us to think about the implication. Verse number 20, Matthew 11. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done. And there are uh, Chorazim, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. They're all together right on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. You can walk to them um, in, a, in a hard day's journey. You can go to all three of them if you really want to. Now what does he say? Because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, now, was he ever in Tyre and Sidon? It seems like he may have been in the region for sure, if he wasn't in the cities. If the mighty works had been done in you, had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, and that was his home base, you, Capernaum, Will you be exalted in heaven? You will be brought down to hell, Hades. For if the mighty works done in you have been done in Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Now think about what he just said. Jesus knows that if the works done in Chorazim and Bethsaida have been done in Tyre and Sidon, now Chorazim and Bethsaida is Jewish, Tyre and Sidon are um, Gentile, if those works have been done there, those people would have repented. Nevertheless, did Jesus ever go and do those works there? He never did. So Jesus knows what each human being will do under certain circumstances. Tyre and Sidon would have repented. Yet even in his own day, Jesus does not do the works in Tyre and Sidon that he knows would bring about the repentance. Now further, let me throw another implication in there. Does he know what it would take for Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum to repent? And the answer is yes. Did he do them there? He did not. Sodom and Gomorrah. If, the, if, if why didn't God intercede for Sodom and Gomorrah and send Jesus there to do the mighty works in, in Sodom and Gomorrah and see them repent? I mean, he sent Jonah to Nineveh. Nineveh was a wicked, wicked, evil city. And they repented. You see where I'm going with this? The, um, the very fact, if you really think about the implications of all this, this is what it did for me this week. It caused me to worship in amazement that he granted to me repentance. And it should you too. I am no more deserving of God's grace than the people of Tyre and Sidon or Sodom and Gomorrah. No more deserving. And that he saw to it that I repented of sin. We serve an amazing God. I want to end this section of God's providence over sinful acts with an explicit statement from the mouth of Jeremiah the prophet. So you can um, turn to Lamentations 3. 
I'm going to read a couple other prophets as, as we meander our way there. Now, he, he wrote the book of Lamentations, and uh, the, 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 the picture seems to be that Jeremiah is looking over the city of Jerusalem in a smoldering ruins, and he's lamenting the pillage and destruction of Jerusalem. Now, for hundreds of years, God warned what would happen if Israel should forsake him. All the way back into the Pentateuch in Deuteronomy, God made that clear. Um, God warned Israel, listen to Amos chapter 3, verse number 11. Therefore, thus says the Lord, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your stronghold shall be plundered. That's Amos. Okay. This disaster that is to come is a product of thousands of human decisions. Let's not miss this. Many of them sinful decisions to get to the point where Jerusalem is pillaged. I'm not talking about the Jewish people's sinful decisions. I'm talking about Babylonian. God promised Israel, Amos chapter 3, verse number 2, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. And these decisions that were being made by the Babylonian Empire, they were being made uh, on their own, right? Their own decisions, and yet God is superintending these decisions to destroy Jerusalem. Viewing millions of sinful decisions as firmly in the hands of divine providence, so not to mean that God's hands are defiled, this is what Jeremiah says. Look at Jeremiah, or I'm sorry, Lamentations 118, and then we'll turn to chapter number 3. 118, what does Jeremiah conclude in 118? The Lord is in the right. Now he's looking at the destruction of Jerusalem, knows the Babylonians are sinful. The prophets even said, I'm going to send somebody more sinful than you to destroy you. And he says, the Lord is right. Neither Amos nor Jeremiah would have taken our modern sensibilities that try to remove um, the human decisions as part of God's appointed disasters or remove them from his providence. In modern times, we try to soften everything. We try to make excuses. Jeremiah doesn't make any excuses. He just says the Lord is right. His view is that all things, every command in battle, every good and evil act, are from the mouth of the Lord. Right in the center, almost the exact center of the book of Lamentations, chapter 3, verse number 37. Who has spoken and it came to pass? Unless the Lord has commanded it. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good alone comes? Is that what the verse says? Good and bad. Why should a living man complain, a man about the punishment of his sins? What is Jeremiah saying? He is saying that nothing, no sin even, comes about unless it was the intention of God. And he says, from the mouth of God, both good and evil come. Or good and bad. And 
It's done in such a way, God doesn't make people sin, does he? But he works his way through this, and he does it, and his hands are clean. That's a mystery. As I close, I want to confirm that the Bible teaches, this section, by the way, not the sermon. (laughs) Sorry about that. As I close this section, I want to confirm that the Bible teaches that God is absolutely not evil, never does evil, And the Bible teaches that God sees to it that evil happens. So we can embrace both. It's not a contradiction. God has not revealed how he can do both. And frankly, we don't need to see how. Deuteronomy says this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our our children forever. God revealed what he wants us to know right now. I want to end Providence, the series, on a positive note, though, and talk about God's providence and our sanctification. Before I I, I get there, I want to remind you of who we are before conversion, and then we'll get into sanctification. Now, as we get into sanctification, I want you to remember, I'm dealing with it only from the aspect of God's input into our sanctification and not necessarily the means that we need to grow in our sanctification. Because there are means, aren't there? Bible reading and prayer and, and, and um, corporate worship and all those sorts of things. I'm not dealing with it from that angle. I'm only coming from what God does to get us to become more sanctified. So before conversion, what was the nature of our conversion? Um, what we don't do, don't make this mistake, of going back to your own conversion and deciding how conversion is by how you thought and felt. But rather, rely upon biblical descriptions. First of all, before salvation, not only did we sin, but we loved darkness. We loved darkness. John 3, 19 says, and this is the judgment that light has come into the world And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. That's everyone before conversion. They hate the light. The light being the truth about God. The truth about His holiness and righteousness. Before conversion, people hate that because it exposes their evil deeds. Secondly, not only do we love darkness, but we were slaves of sin. Romans 6.17 But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching by which you were committed. Thanks be to God that you were a slave and now you're not. You were a slave to sin. A slave has no will of their own in essence. A slave only does what his master wants it to do. Sin is our master, and we do it. So we love darkness, we're slaves of sin. Third, the Bible says that we were dead. And you were dead in trespasses and sins when you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires 
of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So we love darkness, we hate the light, we're slaves of sin, and we're dead. So our salvation is truly a miracle, isn't it? But how does God's providence help us sin less as we, after conversion, we move along? Well, we call that process sanctification, don't we? So let's think about this. First of all, God provides. God provides. You can turn to Jeremiah 31, 33. We'll go back to the Old Testament because there, there, there are new covenant promises that lay out exactly what God's going to do in the Old or the New Testament uh, for us, the New Covenant, I guess you could say. Jeremiah 31, 33, God promised that he would see to it that his people would obey him. He said, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. So now the law will not be something that externally conforms them, but rather it's an internal desire causing us to obey. God promised in the Old Testament that He would provide for sanctification. Ezekiel 36, 26. And I will give you a new heart. Isn't, doesn't that kind of a New Testament description of us? A new spirit will I put within you. Christ said, I will send another comforter. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And look at what happens when the spirit is within you. I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's the new covenant. These are both new covenant promises, aren't they? And when God puts a spirit in you, there's an internal uh, desire to obey him. Now, with those new covenant promises, I repeat this when I do the Lord's Supper as much as I can. Luke 22.20, it puts all of this into focus. This is the culmination of all these promises at the Last Supper. Jesus said, this cup that is poured out for you is the what? New covenant of my blood. So the new covenant that you see in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel is fulfilled in Jesus Christ through the shedding of His blood. And that's the beginning of the new covenant and the beginning of those promises being fulfilled. Announced at the Last Supper. This is what God is doing. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul makes an explicit connection between the new covenant promise of Holy Spirit and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in believers. It says this, God has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The letter kills is referring to the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, where words are written on stone, but not on the heart. But now that the New Covenant was inaugurated, the Holy Spirit gives life 
through Jesus Christ. So God's doing all this, isn't he? Now, how does all this happen? These are the promises, but how does it happen? You can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 if you want. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and verses 17 and 18, we're going to continue. Paul's going on to explain now. He says, now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now we see the process. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of a glory to another. So what does he say? Here's the process. We behold his glory through his word, right? And when we behold his glory through the word, when we're, when we're find, reading and knowing more, we're, Paul, uh, Jesus prayed and Paul prayed that we would be filled with the knowledge of him. But look at where it came from. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Do you see who the ultimate cause is? So, when we desire to know God more, it's not that all of a sudden I woke up one day and I turned over a new leaf. No, it was from the Lord. When you read your Bible, when you come to a worship service and you do these things, God rewards you for it, but it was all Him. He's the ultimate cause, just like we've seen in all the other aspects of providence. So when God saves us, He then begins His work of sanctification in us, and over time we can see ourselves changing, and our experience leads us to believe that we are making the change, but in reality it's God changing us. And that is what Paul meant in Philippians 1.6 when he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, he's going to continue making you more like Christ. You're going to die and you're not going to be like Christ. Or, um, I mean, you will be after you die, but I'm saying up until the point of death. Or Christ is going to come back. Either way, when you're in the presence of Jesus Christ, it's completed. Later on in Philippians, he says this, Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now this is a critical key verse in understanding the providence of God in our sanctification. Notice, first, the word work out. You know what that word means? Produce. Bring about. Um, it implies an ongoing intentional effort. It leads one to believe that the sanctification is our effort. If God tells you, work out your salvation, and you hear it, and you go home and say, okay, I'm going to work. Um, next year in the Bible reading, I'm going to read my, the whole Bible through with the Bible reading plan. That's working out. But number two, we cannot draw the conclusion that it's our effort because these verses say we work because God works in us. What does he say? For it is God who works in you. So the call is to work out our own salvation. 
we respond by working on our sanctification, and that sounds a whole lot like cooperative effort, doesn't it? We work because God calls us and we cooperate, but third, what is God's work in us? What is the work that He does in us? Last phrase. Both to will and to work. So the will, if you desire next year, I've never read my Bible through in one year, I'm going to read my Bible through in one year. Guess what that is? That's God working in you to will. And then when you do it, that's God working um, on you to uh, uh, complete it. And that's His good pleasure. He gives us both the will, desire, and the strength to work on our sanctification. And we start the work, but God is the decisive actor, not us. Is this a lot? Now, there's one more component I want to talk about. There's a lot I could. And it, I'm not going to have time to develop it because we're running out of time, but I'll just briefly touch on it. There's a critical component in what it looks like in a person's life um, when they change, how God changed our life, and it's love. When Jesus said, love God and then love your neighbor, right? Um, you see over and over, there's a prayer that love abounds. Now, why is that? Jesus said in John, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Love for God as a motivation for obedience is a pervasive teaching in the New Testament. Love and obedience um, are interchangeable. It's the proof of salvation when you love God and obey Him. And when you love God and obey Him, He reveals more about Himself to you. For example, John 14, uh, 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love Him and manifest myself unto Him. You see the interchangeability of love and obedience here? They're, they're, they're synonymous. The love increases, obedience increases. If obedience is not increasing, the love is not increasing. But not only that, you also see he's going to manifest himself to us. You want to know more about God? Be obedient. That's what he's saying. Think about verse number 23. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Now that makes it sound like our salvation is our own effort. That's not what he's saying at all. Jesus' motivation for obeying the Father was love for the Father. And when we obey, it's proof that we're abiding in Christ's love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Listen, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. You see how that works? God loves, Jesus loves the Father, and so he obeys the Father's commands. We love Jesus, so we keep Jesus' commands. Same thing. For this is the love of God, that um, we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. When you love God, the things that He calls you to do, they're not burdens. They're not at all. 
You know, um, I, un I understand this practical illustration from my own life. Um, when we came back from Arizona in April this year, Heather wasn't doing much of anything for herself. I was doing basically everything. As time went along, I did everything for her. And I was trying to preach and go to meetings and, and that sort of thing and cook and clean and do laundry and, and run errands for Heather and all that sort of stuff. And over and over, she would express the fact, I really feel bad that you're having to do all this. And I looked at her over again. I said, Heather, it is my, this is not work. It is my joy to serve you. It's my joy because I love you. I'm doing this out of joy. It is not work. And the same thing is true. When you love God, when you understand the magnitude of your salvation and, and, and um, your love for him increases, it is not burdensome to obey him. That's how God works to bring us about to his image. So I'm going to summarize. The conforming of God's people was predestined. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. There it is. He, he, um, he predestined our conforming to the image of the Son. He promised, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. He purchased um, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify a people for his own possession who are zealous for what kind of works? Good works, good meaning morally good, not sin. All right? He commanded, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your body as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your spiritual serve, uh, worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. He commands us. And then when he commands us, do you know what he does? When he commands, he provides what he commands. And it says, and now may the God of peace is a benediction, who brought again from the dead by the Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. There it is. Working in us that which is pleasing to his sight through Jesus Christ. And now we come all the way back to my very first sermon on providence with this very last phrase, to whom be glory forever and ever Amen. And that is the goal of providence, remember? God provides, so in the end, in all of eternity, His people will praise the glory of His grace. Amen, isn't it? Lord, I thank You that we grow in Jesus Christ not out of grit that you don't save us and just leave us to ourselves. But Lord, what you command, you provide for. And you provide in magnificent ways. 
And so I, I ask that as we grow in Christ, as we uh, become more like Christ, we see Christ more clearly, that we will praise your glory and realize what a debt we owe to the God who is working inside us moment by moment, day by day, bringing us in more conformity to the image of His Son, in Christ's name. Amen.